As the ocean dies, we all die. And so we found that we were selling 20 uh, times as much of the new logo with the, uh, with the Jolly Roger. If you take a look at Greenpeace, of which I was a co-founder of, uh, they bring in about 400 million euros a year. And in comparison, we bring in 15. Well, we have 12 ships. They have three ships. So it's not the money. It's the passion that makes, the, uh, makes us successful. Well, the media only understands the four elements, which are sex, scandal, violence, and celebrity. And every story has one of those elements. If you have, the more elements you have, the bigger the story. Uh, I mean, if it's not on camera, it, it didn't really happen. <laughs> I'm not really concerned about people's criticisms. It means nothing to me. I don't, my clients are not people. My clients are whales and seals and dolphins and sharks. And, you know, those are who I represent. So if people like what we do or they don't like what we do, I don't really care. Bonjour, bonjour. And welcome to Mission First, the podcast to get inspired and to learn from successful entrepreneurs who are building a sustainable future for our planet and its people. I am Gilles Toussaint, your host and the founder of GT Impact, a growth and digital marketing agency working only with companies making a positive difference in this world. Growing a company that aims at having a sustainable impact is not easy. That's why I created Mission First. In each episode, I interview one entrepreneur who has a sustainable mission and who has recently gone through the difficult first years successfully. Together, we discuss their challenges and what they have learned on the way. We go into detail with a specific focus on company culture, leadership, financing, growth, and business strategy. That way, you'll learn hands-on tips on how to build a better future and a successful company too. Today, our guest is Captain Paul Watson, who was one of the co-founders of Greenpeace. In 1977, he left that organization to create Sea Shepherd. For more than 40 years, Sea Shepherd has been defending the oceans, saving the lives of thousands of whales and fighting against illegal fishing. Today, I'm incredibly honored to have the chance to learn more about his fantastic story and experience building the biggest non-governmental navy in the world. Among others, we discussed his experience with branding, how they came up with a new flag logo, and how it tremendously impacted their revenue. We talked about how they maximized their operations efficiency, how they avoided any paid promotion and instead had people choosing to join them. We talked about his first steps to fund and kick off Sea Shepherd at the beginning as well as how they set the organization administration and operations in such a way that it is an international movement with independent entities working on their own campaigns. We talked about leadership, passion for the mission, and how they find and recruit their volunteers and crew members. We spent a long time at the end talking about his communication strategy and the tactics they used to get so many TV documentaries filmed about their cause. We discussed also positive and negative press, haters, and how far you can go to get media attention. If you want to have a lesson on communication strategy, leadership, and how to grow one of the most charismatic and impactful NGOs of the world, this episode is for you. Welcome to this podcast, Mr. Watson. To start on the right foot, um, how should I call you? Captain Watson, Mr. Watson, Paul? Captain, Paul, it doesn't really matter. Okay, then how are you doing, Paul? I'm doing fine. So we are in a like, you know, weird situation right now with coronavirus. 
Are the crews of the Sea Shepherd vessels like locked down too, or are they still traveling the world to defend the oceans now? Well, they are locked down, not by choice, but because they're quarantined in uh, the various harbors where they are, so they can't really leave. It's hard to refuel them, hard to provision them. Uh, but they're uh, being maintained and ready to move uh, as soon as uh, these quarantines are lifted. Okay, so you're still working hard. Well, there's no rest when you're on the ships because they always have to be maintained all, you know, uh, from uh, morning to night. Uh, how, many, how many ships and vessels do you have right now? Because I read that you know, you have the, it's, it's right now the biggest non-governmental like, navy in the world that you have. We have 12 ships. So at any given time, there's about 240 uh, volunteers on those ships. 240 volunteers and 12 ships. Um, so to start this podcast, I must, uh, I must tell you that I was really excited and honored to have the chance to interview you for, for one particular reason. I grew up like watching the documentaries from the Commandant Cousteau a lot. You know, I'm Belgian And uh, so I'm a big fan of the oceans and I have so much respect for your dedication and what you have accomplished for the defense of the, the marine life. So thank you very much for that. I, I wanted just to give a few numbers to our listeners. Your direct action campaigns have prevented, I read, the slaughter of like thousands of whales and you've helped reduce Japan's whaling quota from a thousand whales a season to less than 300 a year, and if I'm not mistaken, you said recently you caused them so much loss that they they pulled themselves away from whale fishing as research activities in 2019? We prevented them from killing 6,500 whales. We've cost them over $150 million. And uh, this year, uh, they are no longer down there and they won't be returning. So the first time in the history of whaling, there's no whaling taking place in international waters, in pelagic waters. And whaling is now restricted to the territorial waters of uh, Norway, Japan, Iceland, and Denmark, with Norway now being the largest whaling nation on the planet. Ah, okay. And you were going to like have some campaigns in Iceland soon? We had a campaign in Iceland last summer, and no whales were killed. And uh, so we're still uh, opposing Icelandic whaling and... Uh, Most likely this summer, we'll see what happens. But uh, I, I th whaling is a dying industry. And, uh, you know, since 1977, when we began, we pretty much eliminated 95% of all whaling operations. And uh, it's only a matter of time before the remaining ones just stop being. It's just, it's, it's a very uh, archaic industry and world opinion is uh, very much against it. Oh, thank you very much for and congratulations for like all your efforts and like paying off right now for that. My first question might be pretty surprising to you and it's not related to Sea Shepherd, but I'm really curious. I guess you might have a thousand interview requests every day. You don't know me. I write you out of the blue and explain you the, the, this, what this podcast is about. And I was surprised that you said yes. So I'd like to ask you, why did you accept to participate to this podcast? Well, I try to uh, speak to as many people as possible. Uh, uh, Omar, who's my assistant, uh, you know, he uh, gets these uh, requests and uh, then he asked me to do so. Uh, so I, you know, like tomorrow, I have a, a, a short uh, interview with a high school uh, uh, student. And uh, from, you know, where is she? I think she's from um, Mexico, actually. And, um, you know, so I try to reach as many people at their request as possible. How much are you trying to, to build credibility by, by educating the, the people beside the, the awareness on the campaigns and themselves? Well, we're not involved with building credibility at all. 
Uh, we're trying to get uh, messages out that uh, the ocean is in trouble and we have to defend it. Uh, you know, so it's really not about building up Sea Shepherd, it's more about getting that message out. I mean, we can sum up the message very simple in one sentence. If the ocean dies, we all die. And uh, so this is all about uh, making sure that uh, we survive into the future. And we're only going to do that by uh, defending our life support system, which is the ocean. And we just talked about the, the whale protection campaigns. Uh, but as you said, it's only a part of it. And like, luckily, it's coming to an end so, so like slowly. So could you tell us a bit more about what are the different activities that you have? Most of our uh, activities right now are involved around going after poachers, illegal fishing, unregulated fishing. So uh, we're working in partnership with governments in Africa and in uh, South and La uh, Central America. And these partnerships are rather unique. It's for an uh, NGO to partner with a government. Like, for instance, right now we're partnering with Tanzania, Namibia, Gabon, Ghana, Santome, uh, Liberia, uh, Togo, Cape Verde. And what happens, we provide the resources and uh, they provide the authority which allows us to intervene, intercept, and seize uh, poaching vessels. So we've seized over 52 poaching uh, ships off of uh, the African coast. And we're also in partnership with Mexico, uh, Colombia, and Ecuador, and, uh, and Peru. And what we're doing there is the same thing, going after poachers. In Mexico, uh, we're, we have a partnership with the Mexican Navy to stop poachers in the Sea of Cortez, uh, specifically the Totoaba poachers, the ones who are... Uh, contributing to the extinction of the endangered vaquita, which is uh, the most endangered and smallest uh, porpoise in the world. And uh, because of our efforts over the last six years, the vaquita did not go extinct. I'm quite confident it would if it wasn't for the fact that we've confiscated over a thousand nets, over, that's over 150,000 meters of nets, and uh, have prevented them from setting those nets in the vaquita refuge. So there was a time where governments were not super supportive of your actions, you know, like calling you pirates, for example. And I'm thinking about Japan, who were really not happy about what we were, you were doing with the, with the whale industry. So when did you see a change where, where governments started to request working in partnership with you? Well, our first partnership was with uh, Ecuador and uh, protecting the Galapagos Marine Reserve, and that began in 1999. So we've been 20 years now in that partnership. We've provided patrol boats. Uh, we uh, have uh, set up legal classes. We've uh, set up an AIS system to monitor all of the ship movements in the Galapagos National Park. Uh, we've uh, trained and deployed a canine unit to catch wildlife products from being smuggled uh, out and to prevent exotic species from being smuggled in. That is a uh, species which can endanger the habitat there. Uh, but in 2015, what happened is we went after the the ice fishing uh, fleet in off the coast of Antarctica. These are as Chilean sea bass, is what the uh, Patagonia toothfish is. And uh, you know these people have been operating there for de a decade without anybody intervening against them. Uh, there were six uh, poaching vessels led by the most notorious of them all, called the Thunder. And uh, we decided to go after them because Australia and New Zealand and Interpol hadn't been able to do anything about them. So we went after them, and with eight, within eight days, we found the most notorious vessel, the Thunder. And as soon as it saw us, it dropped its nets and ran, thus starting a pursuit that lasted 110 days, the longest pursuit in maritime history. As the Bob Barker, our vessel, chased the Thunder from the coast of Antarctica 
up into the Indian Ocean, then around and halfway up the Atlantic coast of uh, Western uh, Africa before the Thunder captain sank his own ship to prevent uh, it being captured because he was being forced to go into a port for lack of fuel. But meanwhile, back in uh, Antarctica, our vessel, the Sam Simon, came in and confiscated that uh, net, that illegal net. It was 72 kilometers long, weighed 70 tons, and that was the evidence that we had on their illegal activities. After sinking their ship, uh, the, um, the captain and the two officers were sent to prison. And, uh, but during that pursuit, we uh, developed a partnership with Interpol. And since then, that's what led to our partnership with all these other governments. So uh, I think it was in the front page of the New York Times where uh, th- there was the article on our, ca- on our Chasing of the Thunder and Secretary of State of the United States, John Kerry, at the time was quoted as saying, Thank God for Sea Shepherd. The reason being is that uh, as a non-government organization, we're not, uh, we don't have our hands tied with bureaucratic red tape. So we can go in and do what governments can't do because there's so much bureaucracy encumbering their operations. So you're much quicker to react. Yeah. And as for being pirates, well, you know, governments have never really called us pirates. Uh, our opposition, the illegal whalers, uh, the, fi- the illegal fishing operations, they're the ones that call us pirates. And back in the 90s, when they were um, calling us that, I said, okay, well, if you want to call us pirates, we'll be pirates. And we got our own pirate flag. So uh, you can call us whatever you want. But what we're really doing out there is upholding international conservation law. Sea Shepherd doesn't break laws. We uphold laws. We have uh, an unblemished record of nonviolence. We've never caused an injury to a single person. Back in the 1970s, when I set up Sea Shepherd, I developed a strategy which I call aggressive nonviolence. We're very aggressive, but we make sure that we don't cause any personal injury to any, any person at all. And that's, that's been a record that we're, we've upheld and we're very proud to c- continue. So that's regarding the flag. It's great that you mention it right now. Um, like how how important do you do you care about like branding on on, on 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 what was the decision like why did you come up with with that flag and how much do you do you care about the branding of Sea Shepherd like for example like the guidelines for all the people working for you do they have to like um, uh, carry like uh, wear sorry to wear the equipment Sea Shepherd equipment the whole time. Well, the, the flag, or the branding, as you call it, sort of branded itself. I mean, we came up with the flag in response to being called pirates, because every pirate back in the 19, or what is it, the 17th century had their own, had their own Jolly Roger. Um, so, you know, we came up with that flag, and it sort of, people liked it. Uh, we would put that logo on our T-shirts, and we had a classical uh, logo of a humpback whale and a dolphin. And so we found that we were selling 20 uh, times as much of the new logo with the... Uh, with the Jolly Roger. And the merchandising program is important to us because it provides us with a lot of funds in order to operate their ships, about three or four million dollars a year. So that's a big contribution to the, um, to the maintenance and operation of the vessels. But uh, in designing the flag, I did have a, a purpose behind it. The black represents the uh, oblivion of extinction. The skull represents humanity as responsible for driving these species into extinction. The yin-yang of the humpback and the dolphin in the forehead of the skull represents the mind in the ocean, or other words, uh, that uh, peace can be found through uh, 
through uh, you know harm, uh, ecological harmony in the ocean. And underneath we have the cross, shepherd staff, and the trident. So the shepherd staff for protection, the trident represents aggressive, aggressive protection. So that's the symbology behind uh, behind the flag. Um, so it's you know it's a classic Jolly Roger flag. Like every like I said, every pirate had their own flag. It's an interesting name, the Jolly Roger. It comes from the French Jolly Rouge, which was originally the pretty red, because the original flags were actually red and white, not black and white, but that's how it evolved. Oh, wow, that's a real piece of art. So you said you sold 20 times more after changing the, the flag. Did that happen directly the year after? Oh, right away. Uh, you know, especially young people loved it. I mean, it's a very popular logo. And it's gone on many things. I mean, uh, we've had companies approach us to use it. Uh, so we have it on whiskey and we have it on beer and we have it on shirts and we have it on, you know, all kinds of things like that. But it all contributes to uh, raising the funds to operate the ships. That's, that's a great story. And um, regarding the funding right now, now that you're talking about it, uh, what are the different types of funding and how, what's the proportion of the, the different fundings? Uh, when I set up Sea Shepherd, I made sure that we weren't going to, um, we're not going to spend people's money on direct mail. We're not going to spend it on hiring people to stand on corners with clipboards. Uh, we're not going to spend it on ads. We're going to spend it on campaigns, on operation of the ships and campaigns. And if people want to support us, they come to us. And our membership as a result has grown very, very slowly in comparison to other organizations. But what we can say is that 100% of the funds that we raise goes to, uh, goes to our campaigns. We don't have to pay for that overhead. We don't have to pay for all those fundraising operations, uh, which makes us more effective. And also, it means that there's uh, less possibilities of compromise. We don't have to satisfy uh, people. We don't have to be every, you know, everything to everybody. We are who we are. If people don't, if people don't support us, then that's fine. That's their choice. They don't have to support us. Um, you know, uh, people join us. We don't join them is what I'm really trying to say. Okay, so donation is one way and volunteering is like one of, also one of the other way to basically help your company. Yes, the majority of our uh, people on our ships are all volunteers and we couldn't do it without them. Uh, it's their passion, their courage that uh, makes our campaigns uh, successful. So... Uh, Our money comes from donations, from merchandise sales, from fundraising events. Uh, and it's not very much. I mean, if you take a look at Greenpeace, of which I was a co-founder of, uh, they bring in about 400 million euros a year. And in comparison, we bring in 15. Well, we have 12 ships. They have three ships. So it's not the money. It's the passion that makes the uh, makes us successful. Oh, wow. Uh, it's Now that you're talking about Greenpeace, I would like to just take a step back and go go back at that time. So you were one of the co-founders of Greenpeace. Yes. Um, can you can you summarize again why you left Greenpeace at the time? I don't believe in protesting, and Greenpeace is a protest organization. I find protesting to be very submissive. It, you know, you just hang banners and take pictures. So I wanted to intervene. So I set up Sea Shepherd as an interventionist uh, organization. And that's what we are. We intervene. Uh, we don't take. We take pictures, but we also stop the people we're taking pictures of. Uh, and that's uh, that's <laughs> and how, the difference. And how how did you proceed at that time? So you go back. You say, okay, I'm leaving Greenpeace. And 
how what are the first steps until you create your first campaign? How do you find the first people you, you are going to work with? Well, I had built up contacts while I was with uh, Greenpeace, and uh, the first thing I needed was a ship. Uh, so I, I first approached uh, Cleveland Amory and the Fund for Animals in the United States, uh, and uh, he provided me with the funds to buy the ship. And then I provo uh, approached the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals in the United Kingdom, and they provided us with money for our first campaign to protect seals off the east coast of Canada. So it's rather ironic that uh, we're, we're the, like the most radical group around, but we were actually initially funded by two of the very most uh, conservative groups around. Uh, but after we got the, the first ship and we started doing, doing campaigns and more and more people were attracted uh, to what we were doing, and uh, we've grown slowly ever since. Uh, but I think that we've grown in a way which has uh, kept ourselves uh, credible and uh, non-compromised. Is that also why, for example, you don't accept, I read that you don't accept government money? Well, governments aren't really, uh, you know, that, that, that's, Greenpeace actually does that. They don't say they don't accept government money, although they have. Uh, but we've never accepted government money. It doesn't mean we wouldn't accept government money, which has never been offered. Oh. <laughs> And how do you find, like, um, you have the first crew members that, they, that you start the campaigns with. Um, was it enough money from these two organizations to pay for the ships and to also pay a part of these people or like who who gets paid at the beginning how do you how do you like make a living from, from that at the beginning if you want like when you start your ngo and see shepherd in the beginning nobody was in the beginning nobody was paid uh in fact people are my crew had to pay a thousand dollars to join the ship and with that thousand dollars we were able to buy fuel for the campaigns otherwise we wouldn't have been able to do it Uh, so uh, when we got to a, p a point where we didn't have to ask people for that, then we took people on as volunteers without having to pay. Uh, so when they join the ship, you know, their, their, their food and their board, of course, is, is covered by Sea Shepherd. And, and they have to pay their own airfare to join and leave the ship. But, uh, and we do pay uh, good engineers and navigators when, when required and helicopter pilots when required but 90% of the crew are volunteers. Mm -hmm. And how does it go for all the, like for the people setting up NGOs who want to like learn from you now, how do you define like the other employees, the people taking care of, like there's still a few people taking care of the administration, administrative things, or like, you know, you have a CEO, like for everyone. Um, how do you decide what kind of salary these people get? And especially that they are working in, you have plenty of different organizations in, uh, in, in different countries. So how do you decide, like, is there a salary framework for these people? Is it totally transparent, for example? Well, each country makes their own decisions on that. For instance, in Sea Shepherd France, I think there's only three employees. And, uh, you know, I really don't know what they're paid, but, uh, you know, The, every country makes their own decision based on what uh, the needs are, you know. So it's, you know, I don't really pay that much attention to that particular part of it. Okay. And what would you say was the, the hardest part at the start for these, like the first, you know, two, three campaigns? Well, I think the hardest part is uh, bureaucratic uh, interference. You know, the fact that governments try to 
stop your efforts through just petty bureaucratic interventions. You know, you can't do this, you can't do that, or let's see your papers on this. You don't have the proper permits on this. I mean, it's just a, that's just a constant thing. So we ha actually had to get to the point where we just ha learned how to deal with the bureaucrats. And usually the best way to deal with bureaucrats is agree with them and then just do whatever you're going to do anyway. <laughs> okay. So did, did did you always do the papers yourself or did you like at some point as soon as possible is it something to say okay now now I need to find an assistant to do these these things and help me. Well, I try not to do that. I try not to do it myself. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you were on the sea most of the time. Well, no, it's just that uh yeah, well with the you know I have to delegate. Yeah, I have to when Sea Shepherd started Uh, you know, I, I was a leader, basically, and, uh, you know, as an individual. But what we've learned over the years is, you know, you can stop an individual and you can stop an organization, but you can't stop a movement. So that's why Sea Shepherd has become a movement. It's not run by any one individual, including myself. It's uh, in every country, there are separate registered entities, and they all work together under the auspices of Sea Shepherd Global. Uh, but there's no real leader, And now that you're talking about the different entities, how do you define which campaigns are going to be like run uh, for, by, by which country? Like, uh, like to decide which campaigns in general on what topics are going to focus? Well, the countries pick their own campaigns and uh, Sea Shepherd Global uh, decides uh, whether is in charge of the ships and deploying the ships. So, for instance, uh, Sea Shepherd France wanted to intervene against the killing of dolphins in the Bay of Biscay. So they requested the uh, Sam Simon. So the Sam Simon went up there to France to work with Sea Shepherd France to stop that. Uh, so, you know, we have the Bob Barker working with Liberia. We have uh, the Ocean Warrior working with Indonesia. Uh, we have uh, three of our vessels working in Mexico. And uh, those are all decided by the uh, particular... Uh, entities at the time, uh, whoever needs them. And also the other consideration is, uh, can we make a difference uh, tactically and strategically? And uh, and if we can, then then we can get it intervened. Okay, so you manage the fleet and uh, and the the countries manage the, the operations. So what they decide on what they're going to do. Sea Shepherd Global out of Amsterdam manages the fleet. Mm -hmm. And... You're talking about like leadership. In one of your first campaigns, you, you said you put an ad that you need a crew and you had 20 crew members, you had the ship and uh, you tell the crew that you, you found the ship you wanted to disable and uh, you give the crew the option to leave the ship or to go with you but maybe end up in prison or get hurt. And you said 17 joined you and you managed to disable that ship at the time. Do you have a specific recipe for, you know, your motivational speeches? Why do you think people follow you at the risk of their life? Well, I think uh, there's various motivations. Uh, one is people want adventure. The other one is they sincerely want to uh, to make a difference. Uh, in the early days, uh, it was a little difficult. Uh, you know, when I left to go after the pirate whaling vessel Sierra, I just put an ad in a paper in Boston and And, you know, got those people. Uh, but when when push came to shove, they weren't all that dedicated. Uh, 17 of them got off the ship, and only two of them stayed with me to uh, disable the, the Sierra. But since then, of course, things have gotten better because, you know, word gets out what we do. And people who join us now are much more passionate about uh, what they're doing. And uh, and we have, you know, fewer dissenters. Uh, so it's 
it's really um, it's really hard to say. I like people join whatever their motivations to join. The one question I ask them is, uh, "Are you willing to risk your life to uh, protect a whale?" And if they say no, then we don't take them. And when people say, "Well, that's a, an unreasonable request," and I I don't think so. You know, we uh, young people are asked all the time to uh, not only risk their life but to give their life for real estate and flags and religion and all sorts of things. I think it's a far more noble thing to risk your life to protect an endangered species or a threatened habitat than it is to protect somebody's oil well somewhere. I I totally agree. And talking about recruiting, I'm curious, do you have some kind of interview process at at Sea Shepherd or do people have in any case to join the, the other crew member first and then you see how it goes? Oh, no. Well, people uh, get a crew application, uh, and then the uh, crew application is sent to our crewing uh, coordinators, and uh, they do interviews prior to people joining. Okay. And when, when you have to do an interview, what would be, after your first favorite question that you just explained, what would be your second like most uh, like favorite question to, if you think about people building an NGO here who want to hire better and want to learn from you, what would be your second favorite question that anybody could ask and that you think really helped to, to understand if people are motivated or understand anything about the people you want to hire? Well, that's the only question that I ask. The crewing directors have their own questions, which is, you know, usually they're concerned about skills and experience and attitude uh, to see how passionate people are. Uh, and, you know, they go through those questionnaires. And uh, But almost anybody who really wants to crew will be given the opportunity to do so at some point. Because right from the beginning, I wanted to make it possible for just the average person to be able to participate. And uh, we've had literally about 7,000 crew over the years have, uh, have joined us, 7,000 volunteers. And, they, you know, I can't really speak to their motivations, uh, but uh, most of them, I would say, have done a, an incredible job. Uh, and I think that is an experience that they remember really all of their lives. I, I can see that in the, in the documentaries I've watched. And uh, I remember one episode where... Uh, you know, one of the Sea Shepherd vessel like stayed during I think five days between like a whaler fishing boat and the boat that was there to refuel it, and the captain uh, Peter Hammerstedt on the on the, on your vessel. So you were in the captain. He was a captain. Said to the whalers, "I won't move my boat, and I will have you will have to sink me right here." And you got your vessel like crushed between the two giant ships in in in. in what for me felt like very impressive and scary, scary images. That, so, was, that wasn't my, that wasn't my ship. That wasn't my ship. That was Peter's ship, the Bob Barker. Uh, he did an, yeah, he did an incredible job. That's the kind of passion that we're, that we're looking for. And uh, he certainly demonstrated that Peter joined when he was 18. He's now like in his late thirties and uh, he rose up from being uh, a, a deckhand to captain of the ships. And now he's in charge of our African uh, anti-poaching campaigns. Uh, so, We've had many people who've been with us for many, many years, and uh, and so it's it's really the ones who stay with us are the most passionate ones. So is this like how like so Peter started as eighteen in, in as a crew member and then went up the the hierarchy until like becoming a captain? Yes. Okay, and is this always like the way it, it goes for all your your captains at the at Sea Shepherd? Or do sometimes captains join like? being captain directly because they were already captain somewhere else or with their own ships? 
Okay, we've had people have come from all sorts of backgrounds, uh, merchant marine. Uh, one of our captains on the Ocean Warrior last year was the former chief of staff of the Italian Navy. He was actually an admiral. Uh, he retired as an admiral and was captaining our vessel, the Ocean Warrior. Uh, and what is your role, for example, now compared to, to the CEO? Well, I can't uh, leave the country because Japan has me on the Interpol raid list, which prevents me from traveling. So I'm pretty much locked here. So I spend most of my time either organizing or writing or doing uh, uh, or giving talks. So is that at that moment that you started to like that you chose? Um, I think it's Alex as your as your CEO because you couldn't do it yourself anymore. Well, I don't like doing that job. <laughs> okay. okay. And how how do you select some someone like like him to to take a key position like that? Well, in, in 2002, Alex joined as a cook on board our vessel in the Galapagos, worked his way up through mate and became captain, and uh, now he's our global director. So it seems that it's more important to you, like the passion and the dedication is more important. Like you have the time to judge the, the skills of the person during the time he's with you rather than just hiring someone from outside. Right. In France, Lamia Samlami, she joined in 2000 and uh, I think she joined 2005 in the Galapagos. And uh, then uh, she went back to France and organized Sea Shepherd France and built it up by herself. So it's got uh, 19 chapters, the French chapters, and she built all of that by herself. And uh, again, that demonstrates an incredible passion to actually uh, be able to do that. And when it comes to uh, like all these years, um, I, I've asked, you know, the, the audience of this podcast to, to, if they had a question for you and uh, Andrew Stephen asked me to ask you, was there a time during all these years when you thought about quitting and if you had quit, what would uh, have you done instead? No, I haven't thought about it. I don't believe in retirement, so I don't see that happening. <laughs> and during all these years, what for you would be recalled as the most difficult moment? of like Sea Shepherd history? I haven't really had any difficult moments, I guess. Uh, you know, get arrested a few times, but that's just par, par for the course. Uh, I think uh, just dealing with uh, uh, politics within the conservation movement is has probably been the most frustrating thing. But other than that, everything's went quite well. <laughs> never, what, what was the longest time you were like arrested? Well, I was 120 days uh, held in uh, Dutch prison on a Norwegian extradition request, which I won. Uh, and uh, now I've, it's been a number of years since I haven't been able to travel because of the uh, Japanese Interpol red list. I was on the Costa Rican Interpol red list, but they had a change of government and they dismissed the charges against me, which really illustrates how political it is. If it was judicial, they wouldn't be able to do that. Yes, uh, I've seen that. That's crazy to see that. Again, it's, it's really politics. Um, and that's sad. Mm, when it comes to these direct action campaigns, is there some kind of guideline, playbook on how to arrest, to stop poachers without hurting anyone and while respecting the law? All, all of the campaigns are designed to make sure that nobody gets hurt. Uh, that's why we use uh, stink bombs, for instance. You know, they... Uh, butyric acid smells horrible, but it's not going to kill you or even injure you. Uh, water cannons, things like that. So we, we make sure that all of our tactics are designed so that uh, nobody's going to get injured. Um, when you analyze these campaigns afterwards, 
what kind of KPIs are you looking at? If you think about the, you know, the board meeting, what kind of KPIs are they judging in terms of campaign success? Hmm. We have global board and we have every country has their own boards. And I guess they just uh, meet to go over the, you know, the administrative duties really of what we have to do. You know, you got to file to the government, you got to do the paperwork and, and that, and uh, also, you know, oversee fundraising and things like that. That's what the board does. I mean, the board really doesn't uh, decide on strategies and tactics. Those are more for the captains and crews on the ships. Yeah, so you're very hands-on and not bureaucratic at all. Um, I'd like to talk a bit now about the, the communication strategy because I've, um, I've learned something very interesting from, from the documentaries I've seen. Um, you said you need to understand the nature of media and what the media wants, and that there are four elements to use. Um, can you elaborate a bit on that theory and, and give an example of one of your campaigns using that strategy and these four elements, for example? Well, the media only understands the four elements, which are sex, scandal, violence, and celebrity. And every story has one of those elements. If you have the more elements you have, the bigger the story. Um, I, one example, the best example, is uh, on a campaign that had nothing to do with... Uh, whales or seals, but a campaign I organized to protect wolves in, uh, in British Columbia in Canada. And we had a story with all four elements on it, and we carried the headlines for two weeks because of that. The first was they're going to kill wolves and shoot them from helicopters, which is violent. They threaten to kill us if we intervene, which is violent. Uh, the environment minister in the province of British Columbia, we caught him taking a bribe from a big game hunting association, so therefore we had the scandal. So I, at the, I called a media conference and I recruited Bo Derrick as our spokesperson for that campaign. And the place was packed, of course, and uh, cameras and everything. And one uh, reporter for the Vancouver said, come on, what, what does Bo Derrick know about wolves? You know, why is she your spokesperson? This is so ridiculous. I said, well, if I had the best wolf biologist in the world, Dr. David uh, Meck or Dr. Gordon Haber, this would be an empty room. But I noticed it's packed and you're going to write the story. It's going to be the front page of your newspaper tomorrow and there's not a damn thing you can do about it because you control the four elements. It's the same reason we got so much coverage when we took Bridget Bardot to the ice flows of Newfoundland to protect uh, harp seals. That's why we, uh, we came up with, this, with the TV show Whale Wars. It's very dramatic And, uh, you know, we, we're selling a message. We're, but in order to sell that message, we have to dramatize what we're doing. You know, the, you know going out and saying, oh, we're going to save some whales is all well and good, but people want to be entertained. And that's what the media is really all about, is entertaining. So the news has become entertainment, and entertainment has become the news. That's just the nature of the media. We didn't design the media. Uh, we just have to work within the context of the media. Mm, very, very interesting. Thank you very much for sharing that. You said also that the, your biggest weapon is actually the camera. So how much of what is happening on Sea Shepherd is actually filmed? The camera is the most powerful weapon ever invented, and everything we do is filmed. We have um, uh, film crews on every campaign that we do. We have you know, <laughs> tens of thousands of, um, uh, of uh, meters of film footage of, of what we've been doing. And... Um, You know, we put together documentaries. We have a number of documentaries that are released last year and again this year. And, of course, we had a, a television show, which was the biggest show on Discovery, our Animal Planet on Discovery. And um, because we understand that if you're going to get your media, uh, your message across, you have to be able to use the media to do so. You know, what's the point of something happening? Uh, I mean, if it's not on camera, it, it didn't really happen. <laughs> that's, uh, that's the nature of it. 
And these TV documentaries, do you do you produce them? So do you pay for them yourself, and or do you get them done by the television uh, channels in that case? No, when we did uh, Whale Wars and Animal Planet, they paid us, um, and they, they paid for the, the to put them together. Uh, documentaries being done on us, we don't have to pay to do that. There's a documentary called Watson, which is about myself, which was released last year. We also have uh, Chasing the Thunder, Seaspiracy, uh, which is coming out uh, this year. We had uh, uh, Defend, Conserve, Protect, and uh, Jesus, there's I can't even keep up with them. But uh, we don't, we don't, we don't pay for them. They're done by independent uh, producers, they're, and they're, that means they're far more objective. Uh, you know, we don't control what they say and whale wars we didn't control what they said uh, or how they edited it and they didn't tell us what to do and how much do you try to to get these producers is like a uh, documentary makers to to find you and to start to like because i know now it's pretty probably easy because you like people are really aware of like who you are but at the beginning or let's say for someone starting an ngo right now how would you approach these these like uh, documentary makers for them to be interested in you? Well, we've never approached any documentary makers. They came to us. How, how do you convince them to, 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 to shoot such a big documentary, like a TV show on you? By offering them uh, something they can't resist, which is a story, which, uh, you know, a drama. Um, what we do is uh, newsworthy. And in the movie about you that was released last year, one of the journalists you learned from said artists, musicians need to create facts to attract people's attention. So in the movie, we also see you talking to your crew during the campaign against Japanese whalers and saying, one of the tactics we are going to employ is to get people on board and to be held hostage by the Japanese whalers boat to force them to be in a difficult diplomatic position. So you got two crew members on board of the ship. Then you call the marine officials and explain they are taking whales out of the Southern Ocean Whale Sanctuary in violation of a global moratorium of commercial whaling. We are filming them with an helicopter right now. So how much of your actions or scenarios are planned for you and your team to attract attention? Well, that was a tactic, and it can only be done uh, with using... Uh, I had to get Australian citizens to go on board because this was in Australian uh, waters. And uh, we, I knew that uh, Australia was not going to allow Australian citizens to be taken on board, uh, basically kidnapped and brought back to Japan. They had no choice but to intervene. Uh, so it was very important tactically that uh, the people I put on board were Australians. Okay, so that was a real tactic. Uh, so it's the same, as you said, it's part of like using the media the right way and here like the government as well. Uh, and I know on the other side, the lobbies and the people in power are constantly manipulating the media. So I'd like to talk about that part because it's very interesting. So on on your side, do you consider any communication about Sea Shepherd good to have, like positive and negative press, for example? Yeah, I do. I mean, uh, that's the nature, again, of the media. Uh, you know, South Park did a a piece on us, which uh, a lot of people thought was uh, anti-Sea Shepherd. And um, I actually wrote a, a letter to them thanking them for it. And that really bothered them. Uh, Trey Parker, one of the producers, or one of the directors on South Park, he said, his exact words were, Watson's a fucking liar if he says that uh, 
he liked the show. And I said, well, of course I like the show. You put me on the same level as Tom Cruise and the Scientologists and all these other guys. You basically legitimize what we were doing. You don't. You guys don't say anything good about anybody. So if I'm one of those people, you're not saying anything good about. Uh, that's on the same level as all the rest of them. So you did us a favor, but they didn't really understand that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's as it's, it's as a uh, what was it? Um, Oscar Wilde once said. Uh, the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. Doesn't yes. doesn't matter what they say. You know, I'm not really it, I'm not really concerned about people's criticisms. It means nothing to me. I don't. My clients are not people. My clients are whales and seals and dolphins and sharks and you know those are who I represent. So if people like what we do or they don't like what we do, I don't really care. It doesn't bother me at all. I don't do it for them. So the the, the results and the awareness is the most important to you. And when when I will take a, like a, a football analogy. Uh, I don't know how much you are into football, but uh, that's the first one that came to my mind when I think when I thought about this. Is like you know in football, most of the time there is or there might be a fault at some point. But even though the fault is very like is tiny, you know the players usually like just amplify the tiny shock they receive, and so there is a fault. Like someone cut their way and like but the person could have jumped above the person, tried to avoid it, but they just use that opportunity to get the other penalized, and uh, so. And in your documentary, Watson, you had um, one of the people who inspired you, I think a journalist, um, who said that sometimes you have to create facts. So how far can you go to create facts to raise awareness to your cause and actions? For example, you know, in your direct actions, would you say to your crew, if anyone gets a tiny bit pushed by a poacher or you know, one of these bad guys, just let yourself be pushed or thrown, throw yourself in the water and we will film it? Well, that's happened, uh, you know. Uh, the people who uh, have been thrown in the water by poachers uh, volunteered to do that. Okay, so like but that's, that was like uh, you you had planned it. Sometimes they're planned, yeah. Uh, okay. You know, and you do take precautions, uh, but sometimes they're not planned. Sometimes uh, things happen, and that's part of the strategy to, of course, get the the negative like repercussions or consequences. It's at the end of the day, it's just more awareness for you. Well, also, I should point out that the, uh, the getting uh, media attention and creating awareness is secondary to what we do. Our primary objective is to shut them down. Uh, so getting the Japanese out of the Southern Ocean was our objective. Uh, you know, the whale wars was a means of telling the world about what we were doing and getting and helping to raise funds uh, in order to make that a possibility. Uh, so when you get your message out to the world, then you get support, and that's what we were doing for that reason. And that actually works. When when was the the TV show Way Wars? Shot? From 2007 to 2016. 16, and so it took like almost 14 years to for for the the whale uh, uh, the whaling industry to almost stop. Yeah, but every year we managed to cut down their quotas significantly. At one point, one year they only took 10 percent. Yeah. That's again. I, I can't thank you enough for that, and I'm really respectful for that. Um, one question about the the last one about that that topic uh, about the haters. The, the difference here, um, you know, with the new media right now, you know, 20 years ago, you you barely had to talk with your haters, so it was just directly on the press. You wouldn't like see it directly, but now with the with the social media, you have a lot of haters that that pop up. And uh, do you, what's your strategy with that? No, I ignore them and send them to the dungeon. 
Okay. <laughs> what happens is that uh, I, I, I just sit, uh, ignore a block and uh, delete. Uh, so right now on my Facebook thing, I've got, I think about 7,000 people in the, uh, in the band section. You know, I just send them there. I never hear from them again. And, uh, so I don't get many people criticizing me because if, as soon as, uh, any negativity comes on board, I just send them there and never, never to hear from them again. Call it the phantom zone, I suppose. But, uh, you know, I haven't, I haven't got the time or the patience to deal with these people. Uh, and so now they virtually don't exist. I don't hear from anybody really uh, in that respect. Okay. And why, when you said on your social media, why do you have a separate website right now? Like, is it part of this personal branding? How important is it for, for you and how does it contribute to Sea Shepherd to have your own website as Paul Watson and uh, like in comparison to Sea Shepherd and your own social media? Well, Sea Shepherd has literally over a hundred uh, Facebook pages and you know, I'm one of them. I got yeah. there's 750,000 people on my page. There's a million on Sea Shepherd Globals. Uh, so, Every ship has their own uh, Facebook page, their own social network, you know, run by the crews. So uh, it reaches a lot of people. And you you don't have a kind of a marketing department. It's the same thing as well. Every uh, country has a their own like a, owns their own social media and do whatever they want. Yeah, their own. They have their own merchandising e stores. You know, Sea Shepherd UK, Sea Shepherd France. And how do you manage the communication, the consistency through all these like entities? Do you have some kind of guidelines for, for that? Not really. Uh, we all just agree. Uh, you know, they're all kind of, it all, there's an umbrella group, which is Sea Shepherd Global. And, um, you know, it, uh, it oversees uh, the operations of all these different groups, but everybody gets along. We haven't had any problems. So you never had any, like, everybody who stays always, you never had to correct any message. Everybody knows what they, they're supposed to do with their social media. Oh, every once, in a while, you, every once in a while, you have to correct an individual here or there if they get off on a tangent or something weird or something. But other than that, uh, everything's, you know, we're pretty tolerant overall. Okay. And in terms of, like, campaign itself, what is your favorite campaign, like, operational campaign in, in these all these years? What is the one that... You are the proudest of. I don't really have a favorite campaign. <laughs> uh, you know, every we get very much involved in every campaign that we do. And at the time that we're doing the campaign, that is the favorite campaign. That's the one that our energies are going into. And then, uh, you know, you go on to the next one. So you don't drag uh, one after another. You, you get you, you What you do is you uh, you're involved in the present. You're not involved in the past and you're not involved in the future. The most valuable lesson I, I learned, one of the most valuable lessons I learned was back in 1973 when I served as a medic for the American Indian Movement during the occupation of Wounded Knee in South Dakota. And we were surrounded by, you know, 3,000 federal troops that were shooting at us. We didn't have any hope of winning this at all. And I went to Russell Means, who was the leader of the American Indian Movement. I said, look, Russell, what are we doing here? We, we can't win. We can't beat these guys. Or There's just no way. Uh, we're outnumbered. Um, the odds are against us. And he said, well, we're not concerned about the odds against us, and we're not concerned about winning or losing. We're here because this is the right place to be, the right thing to do, and the right time to do it. So don't worry about the future. It's all summed up in the Lakota words, Hokahe, it's a good day to die. Pay attention to what you're doing today. That will define what the future will be. So you have to be in the now, not in the past, not in the, pre not in the future. 
Great advice. That was one of the questions I wanted to ask, like other bonus questions. So thank you for already sharing it. Um, one of the thing I'd like to talk about is about mission in general. How has, like, how do you dictate or how do you, how have you defined the mission from the beginning to to now? Did it change at some point? Was it always the same? And can you tell elaborate a bit on that? Well, Sea Shepherd's an interventionist anti-poaching organization, a marine conservation anti-poaching organization. That's what it's began as, and that's what it continues to be. The difference is now that we've uh, uh, grown to uh, or evolved so that we're now working in partnership with governments around the world, and that's made us much more effective. And talking about the last questions to, to finish this interview, um, with everything you've learned during all these years, what what would you do differently if you had to start Sea Shepherd again? I don't know, probably do the same thing, but you know, you can't, but it's a, it's a different time. I mean, what you could do in the 70s, what you could do in the 80s, you can't do anymore. Uh, it was much, society was much more tolerant of activism then. It's becoming more and more intolerant now. Uh, so you really have to define your strategies and your tactics in the context of the uh, of the times that you're living in and the societies that you're working within. And what would be one book that that you'd recommend to the entrepreneurs out there who are you know starting a startup or NGO with a sustainable or a social goal? Well, I do have a book called Earth Force. Uh, the uh, it's a guide to strategy for uh, environmental warriors. <laughs> Last question for, for you to, to, to speak to our audience. If people want to know more about you or your projects, what should they do? How can they get involved if they want to help Sea Shepherd or support your organization? Where, where should they get more information? Well, we're pretty easy to get in touch with. Uh, just seashepherd.org uh, uh, for our website or Sea Shepherd on Facebook or Instagram or anywhere. We're pretty easy to get in touch with. Okay. Thank you very much for that. Thank you so much for your time today, for your like, invaluable tips. And uh, one more time, thank you again for doing what you've done for the oceans. Long live Sea Shepherd. Take care and uh, have a wonderful day. Okay, thank you. If you like this podcast, there are two things you can do that would mean the world to me. The first thing is to sign up for the podcast newsletter. That way you will be notified of the new episodes but you will also get a summary of the learnings at the end of every season. Plus, for each episode, you will get the resources and the list of do's and don'ts that every guest shares with me. And finally, you will also get the opportunity to ask our future guests one question in advance. You can sign up for this newsletter on gtimpact.com. The second thing you can do to be super helpful is to recommend this podcast. For that, you can write a review on Apple Podcasts and share the podcast with your friends, other entrepreneurs, and people trying to build a sustainable future. That way, we can all learn together and work on a brighter future for us, our children, and our planet. Thank you very much, and see you next week for the next episode. Have a nice day.